Welcome to the Lead Full Podcast, hosted by Chesley Lunday. In each episode, we bring you innovators and creatives that share their insights to help you eradicate futility in your life so you can lead from fulfillment. Only fulfilled leaders can fill the world with hope. Get ready to lead full. Hey, today we are interviewing Matt Dunsmore. He is the CEO of Octopi. You can check out his website at octopi.io. Matt is on the speaking team and the consultant team for Simon Sinek. You might have heard him, you know, leaders eat last. You should start with why. Great guy. And Matt's been on their uh, speaking team for a while. But before that, he was at Zappos and was part of the Holacracy team that did that whole like new way to do work without managers and stuff. That's not quite what it was. You know, we'll talk about that in the, the interview. Be ready because this is going to be enjoyable. Welcome to the show. Full. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm great. It's uh, it's good to be here. Good to reconnect after so many years. So I I don't know if if I, I assume you're gonna tell the story. Of, Probably uh, because you don't even okay. remember it. So uh. <laughs> I, yeah. I oh man. It you was, left a big yeah, impact on my life. <laughs> For, for at least a little while, yeah, for sure. So for those of you that don't know, Matt uh, and I used to go to high school together. Um, I was only living in Pueblo for uh, seven months in between my, my parents' uh, jobs. And so um, playing basketball on the same team, and we were in practice one day, and uh, he was posting up on me, and I was – playing defense and his elbow caught my teeth and I lost oh. a tooth because of it. And so, uh, again, impact, great impact on my life, but mm-hmm. <laughs> you make it, I'm like rubbing my tongue on my teeth, just thinking about back to that. And, uh, well, and it, the funny thing is, so I mentioned this to you when we first chatted, like I recognized the name and I was like, I know this person, but it had been so long. And, and then I, I Facebook stalked you lightly and was like, well, it says he's from Oklahoma and now he lives in Arizona. So there's maybe it's just like a name that's similar to someone who I knew. And, right. and you know, you don't look the same as you did when back when you were a sophomore in high no, school. I gained goodness, like 70 pounds. <laughs> but yeah, right. I think Pretty it was 140. Yeah, 140 when I was playing basketball then. <laughs> yeah, not not the same anymore. Yeah, Oda so. have that metabolism again. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. But I, I still feel very bad. When you told me about that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that happened. I think it's a joke. So, <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. But um, no. I'm glad cool. you can laugh about it. Yes, yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, Matt, you um, the reason why I wanted to hook up with you, you have been wor- – you've worked at Zappos, and you mm-hmm. have uh, worked with Simon Sinek's team. And so you you deal with uh, what it looks like to be a young professional out in the marketplace, you know, kicking butt, taking names. And um, our audience is a lot of that. They're in a lot of leadership positions and are trying to figure out how to make the world a better place at the same time trying to get personal fulfillment. And so I would love to start, like, tell us your story. How would you get in the field where you're at today? How did you meet up with Simon? I would love to hear that. 
Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, it's it, it's always interesting because I don't think and for most of the people that I've talked to, it's a similar story. Once you get to, you know, your 20s, 30s, it's often by accident is, is how you end up wherever you're at. And, and for me, it was no exception. I uh, graduated from college and I, I was very high on myself when I came out of college and I was like, I've got two degrees, uh, nah, 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 and, and no one wanted to hire me. And that was a bit of a shot to the ego. And um, I thought I was above a lot of jobs uh, at that time. And, it, you know, after four months of moving back into your parents' basement, after you think you're the king of the world, you, you get a bit of a check. And so uh, I had a friend who happened to work at Zappos. Uh, he and his brother both had gotten jobs there, and they just raved about it. And I, he asked me if I would help him move out there. And I helped him move his stuff, and he just said, come come take the tour, right? And just kind of a behind the scenes, no, nothing official. And so he got me in, and it was kind of after hours, and he walked me through. And just the vibe that was there, I was like, this is, this is really cool. And he talked about that, you know, you would, most people start on phones, and you get promoted from there. And that was really appealing to me because I was like, I always hated, and, and probably I would guess some of the people on, that are listening as you describe them would feel the same way. I was always one of those people who I felt like I got promoted fairly quickly whenever I was at a place, but then I would get really frustrated when I felt like I was in line for something bigger and then someone would get hired from the outside and they were like, oh, well, this person has experience so we're bringing them in, even though I knew the business or the team or the company better, right? And um, so it just really felt like an alignment of values there. And, and I liked that about them. And I was always one of the people who uh, was raised to uh, not do a lot of career hopping. That was something that was discouraged. And I think now it's it's less viewed that way. And, and there there's certainly merit to that. Uh, but I was definitely like in my family, it was when you start somewhere, you want to continue there as long as possible, right? That's a good sign. So uh, I liked that a company actually reflected that back to me for once and, and it showed a real investment. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. Vegas is a fun place to live in your early 20s. Why not? And so uh, I did that. Uh, was working there, worked my way up there. And uh, by the end of it, I was working in software product management. But along the way, I had kind of stumbled into this idea of company culture and the impact that it could have. Um, part of what pulled me there was the culture they had and, and how it appealed to um, just focusing on the individuals who worked there. And I felt that, you know, I'd never been in a place like that. And so uh, I joined a bunch of the culture initiatives, some inward facing things, and, and I started working on the Holacracy team when we were making a transition over to self-management, self-organization. And so I was really, I was more excited about that than the, the job that was paying my bills at the time, right? And so I was doing that kind of as a side gig inside the company, but I was primarily getting paid to do other stuff. I think I was working in content and on the social media team, and then eventually I was a product manager in software. And um, it just so happened that while I was on that team, um, Simon's team came in. So Simon and Tony, the, the former CEO, uh, they were good friends. And uh, Simon had just offered, hey, my team does these things called Y Discovery Workshops. Do you think it would be of use if they came in and did it for you know some people in your organization? And luckily, I was leading enough teams at that time that I qualified to be invited to the workshop. And uh, I just kind of was like, well... You know, if I'm going to be expected to manage myself, I should probably understand myself a little bit better. So, yeah, let's let's take a look at this because I was in the habit, and I, I think maybe you probably know how this goes, but you just say yes to a lot of things, right? You're, you're a person who has a lot of <laughs> – they're, they're handing a lot of different pies, right? Always doing something, always staying busy. 
and uh, it was the same as Zappos. I would say yes to almost everything because it was like, ooh, that could be fun, or ooh, this will like be a good career move, or I can contribute here. And there was just always reasons for me to say yes. Yeah. So I was stretching myself then, but I didn't have a good filter for what was going to be that thing to keep me from overextending. And so I went through this workshop and was like, oh my gosh, you know, I needed this clarity to understand what makes me tick. And through that, a group of eight of us kind of met with them the next day to say, can you teach us how to do this so we can do it for each other? When people come through training, we want to give them this experience. And they said, well, we don't have a product for that, but if you help us kind of build it, then sure. So we helped them kind of co-build this uh, and test out this train the trainer model that they hadn't done at the time. And over the course of that work, I really was like, this is, this feels more right to me than what I'm doing. Like, I loved the software I was building. I loved the team that I was on, but I wasn't thrilled about the idea of selling stuff to people. You know, retail was never really my bag. And it was always about the people in the background. So um, uh, just at the end of certification, uh, they <laughs> they were going on uh, to get certified. They had to observe us delivering the workshop. And then we stayed after for a debrief. And they had a lot of feedback for me and my co-facilitator. So we what, you weren't staying. a pro right out, right out of the gate? <laughs> No. I know, right? I was, yeah. uh, I thought I was a pro for sure. Um, once again, humbling moments just keep piling up. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the, the crew kind of said, um, you know, we got done and I, I actually said, well, I had to cancel my plans because, you know, I went over today. Anybody want to go grab dinner? And they were the two, the two from Simon's team were like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And uh, during the course of dinner, they said, you know, don't don't feel the pressure. We're not trying to steal you or anything. But if you ever decide to leave Zappos, let us know because we think this is something actually you might be doing. And it was just one of those stars aligning moments where there was enough stuff happening in the background plus this that I was like, if I don't say yes, I'm going to regret this the rest of my life. And like, how often do you get the opportunity to not only go after something that you really want and work for someone who you respect, but but be asked to do that. And so I was like, yeah, I got to do it. So, so I did that and I took the leap and um, I said, how's January sound, which they weren't ready for, I'm sure. Cause it was like October and they were like, Oh, um, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. And so that's kind of when it kicked off. And, and I started at the same time while I was working with their team, kind of doing my own thing. And that was when I created salt and pepper thirties, which is exactly what you're talking about with young professionals. Cause that was my passion was at that time, trying to help people who were in a similar boat, of really progressing fast and always feeling like you're the youngest person in the room. No one necessarily wants to listen. You know, oh, you have to earn your stripes, like all of those things I kept hearing. And so I wanted to help people who were in a similar position in their career, uh, which ultimately then led me to, to where I am now in Octopi and all those things. But but that's that's the gist of how I got connected with Simon and the team. That's amazing. So um, I want to back up a little bit at your time at Zappos. Um, so in 2014, there was a huge initiative that hit uh, all over the country um, from a media perspective that was about Zappos is changing their company culture. They're not going to have managers anymore. And that's what the holacracy uh, movement was, right? Um, mm -hmm. if, I, yep. if I remember correctly. I remember reading that and you were saying you're actually on the team. Would you explain to the listeners what, what that was and what you guys were doing? Yeah, so so if you have never read this book, I highly encourage you to check it out. It's called Reinventing Organizations. It's by a guy by the name of Frederick Lelou. Um, really interesting that, that really kind of looks at the types of organizations and how we wield power within them and also create structures. And um, 
we were on the mission or on the journey as an organization to go what they would call teal, which is kind of this end state. No one, there is no organization on the planet that is fully teal, but it's kind of all, all of these different elements that add up to create that. And it has to do with sustainability and autonomy. And, and then part of it was self-management and self-management really at its core, and especially holacracy is the example. Uh, holacracy you can think about as an off the shelf way of self-managing. It's just kind of a, a format. And so um, we use that because it was one of the only real options that gave us like an instruction manual of how to do it. And we were the largest company to ever try self-management at over a thousand. I think at that time we were 1200. And so um, really the only difference is, you know, it, it wasn't what they talked about. I think they sold it as we're getting rid of managers. There is no more hierarchy. And, and realistically, we are a species that actually thrives on hierarchy. Not to say we like to only be led or whatever, but but it feels good for us to be able to maneuver within the hierarchy, right? It's very rewarding. And so it was less, it's basically taking the idea of a hierarchy of people, like we have in most organizations, of you report to this person or who reports to this person, and turning it into a hierarchy of work. So rather than I am at a level below this person, it's I might fill a role that reports to another role, but I as an individual, I'm at the same actual level as the other person who's filling that because in another context, I might fill another role where I'm the person who is in the role that is above another role, right? And so that to me really appealed. And then also what it allows you to do in these types of structures is have a say in how the work looks. A lot of organizations will define the position before you get into it and you don't really have a say. Um, and in holacracy is specifically, what you can do is every, you know, could be a couple of weeks, could be month, however long, but you have governance meetings where you actually can reform the work to make sure that it's actually doing the thing it needs to be doing. So if you're like, I've been assigned this task and it doesn't actually fit within my role, you have a space to say that. And the litmus test is, if it doesn't align with your role's purpose, absolutely it shouldn't be there, right? We can create another, doesn't mean we get rid of that work, but we can create another role for it and someone else can fill it. So um, it was just a really good way of empowering people and also removing kind of the, you never fully get away from politics at work, unfortunately, because we're human beings, but it was a good way of uh, making sure that people kind of felt that level playing field and had a say. So the pushback on um, that sort of, that sort of government, if you will, that 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 structure, is that um, you can't control anything. So you can't control the output of the people. And um, obviously, I think uh, millennials are like, "Hey, that's okay. I want to work hard." But um, boomers <laughs> yeah. are like, "Yeah, I don't know." Uh, what was the biggest challenges that you guys had in implementing that sort of structure? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you nailed part of it right there is that there is this mentality in many organizations. I don't care how, you know, modern or um, progressive your organization is. Our tendency, just as human beings, biologically, we're wired to be more skeptical than we are optimistic. Uh, it's just the, the way that we've grown. So uh, a lot of people, there is a lack of trust. They operate from a lack of trust. And what you're pointing to is a big piece of that. And and when you have come from the mindset of expecting people to try and get away with stuff, or if we don't tell them what to do, they won't do it, you know, or it's going to be done a way that isn't effective or efficient, um, 
what happens is that mindset gets ingrained because we build policies and practices around it. And so it was, it was a reinforced mindset that most people didn't even know they had that we had to shift. So shifting the mindset behind it was probably the biggest thing. And, and then there was this other piece that was not accounted for at the beginning. And I, I don't think anyone's done it well, which is part of why the why discovery process to me resonated was because uh, progression goes out the window. If, if you're in an organization where the role that you were hired for and the very clear path that you had from, let's say you were a designer, come in as an intern that you can go to designer, uh, designer two, senior designer, director, VP, C level, right? That's typically like the trajectory. And suddenly, let's say you've worked all the way up to a senior designer and you're on, on track to become a director, and they come in and they say, oh, we're shaking it up. Now there is no constant when it comes to the organizational structure. We have no specific roles and the roles that you may spin up now could be entirely different in a year. People who have worked really hard to get to where they're at suddenly are, are displaced and they don't know where they can go now. And so progression and a sense of identity, we tie a lot of our identity to that. And I think that really threw off the momentum as well because you had people who very much considered part of their identity as a manager. Whether or not that was a positive thing, they, they saw themselves as that, right? Because it wasn't just about management, it was about leading. And suddenly they were being told like, oh, management in itself is not a job. You have to have actually like work-based outputs that will map to get your pay. And it, it set a lot of people back um, and a lot of good people left. A lot of good people lost motivation um, and there was a lot of fear. So I think just not knowing that piece or the extent of that piece's impact really set us back as well. Yeah, so you guys were implementing change in an organization that was already pretty progressive. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of our leaders are in organizations that are not progressive at all. And so they have the old <laughs> hierarchy, uh, the old structure, legacy structure is what I like to call it. Um, yep. Uh, when you are dealing with that massive of a shift, and, and it's a large company, it's over 1,200 people, um, yeah. What were the processes of change management that you guys were like really, really good at? And then um, tell me like where you guys could have improved. Oh, great question. Um, I think the really good at piece was caring for each other along the way. Um, because we started with a people focused culture, that was one thing that was really um, going for us in the transition because anytime you go into some uncertain situation like that, whether or not it's transitioning your entire operating system, like switching over to a holacracy or anything like that, or maybe switching product lines or even the way we work, right? So right now is a perfect example, you know, over the past 12 months, even if your company's products and services haven't been affected necessarily by COVID, probably the way you work and bringing those to life absolutely has. And so there are probably people out there who had worked all the way up to, you know, maybe they were the one who hired you and you had just started three months before COVID hit. Well, guess what? Now you had to switch over to a digital program or a digital platform. And the, suddenly the people who were junior, they're like, well, I'm really at home on this platform because I use it for whatever, right? Or I've used Slack right. or Zoom or any of these kinds of conference platforms. And so you're the one who's now training the person who hired and onboarded you. And they all of a sudden feel really displaced. So you have to have that level of trust and humanity and care for each other so that you don't show up from a place of, ha ha, now you're on the other end. But instead you're showing up from a place of like, we're all in this together, we're, we're gonna do it. And I think we had a pretty good spirit of that. Um, 
one of the things that I think was not uh, really well done, it, it was it was all, oversold a bit, I guess I'll say, in that, you know, they talked about there will be no managers. Well, there's still people who need to oversee and make sure that the vision is being held. Doesn't mean you get to micromanage, right? The title manager changes and some of the expectations of it change as well. But the work of taking care of your team members and making sure we're getting done what we need to do is always going to be there. No matter how self-motivated each of us are, at least having someone to kind of bring us all together and focus us on the vision. So uh, I think that was one of the things that worked against us was that it was pitched as we're flattening the organization, there will be no more managers. And in reality, it wasn't a flattening of the organization, it was flattening of the people, but the organization still had a hierarchy and that was okay. And it was almost demonized these ideas of managers and hierarchy when it didn't need to be, you know, and some of those things are really helpful if they're done in a healthy way. And that was the, the kind of big takeaway that um, myself and a lot of those members who like we joined on the Holacracy team after it was already in motion. Um, one of the things we really pushed for was like, stop worrying about the word and start worrying about how you're showing up as we're doing it. And that was something we had to undo that the original team, I think, came in and they were, and they came from a good place. They were yeah. trying to get us excited about it, um, but ended up kind of setting us up for, uh, well, maybe just setting us up behind the eight ball. Right. So um, there, there are a couple of people that work really well with a blank sheet of paper and just, here's the mission and here's what you need to accomplish. Go do it. And then there are others that need a roadmap. And did you find in that process that the people that needed a roadmap actually needed to, to leave? Did it, did it favor one sort of working style over another? It, it was so fascinating because sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. Um, and it, the funny thing is uh, one of the guys that's on my team now, um, and I worked with him at Zappos as well, his name's Paul Walker. And he, he self-describes as he loves to be a henchman. And, and that's basically what you've, you're, you're mentioning of like, you know, give me the thing that you need done and I'll carry it out. I'm the best at that. But like, don't make me, you know, do the entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a place for both, which is cool. Right. Um, what I found, because I did some Holacracy consulting after I left Zappos with other organizations. And one of those was the city uh, of like, or the state of Washington's tech department. So WaTech um, decided to do an experiment. And um, I was one of the people who got to help kind of train and onboard this. And it was very scientifically done. There was a control yeah. group and there was an actual, you know, all that stuff. And what I found was that people who loved that piece, like the the process and, and, and that gravitated toward, like they were the best at learning the rules. Right, because if you're going to have a system like that where it's so wide open, there is the opportunity for chaos. Right. So you have to have really strong edges of the sandbox and be very clear about like this is what is on limits and this is what's off limits. And uh, holacracy is kind of known as having a really big rule book. They actually call it the Constitution, like the holacracy mm. Constitution, and it's massive. And um, they gravitated towards, you know, they were the best ones at the roles that were about process, about making sure you could do this. Like they knew the rules inside and out better than anyone else. And then you had those kind of entrepreneurial people who then really were just like, well, what if we did this? What if we did this? And then they had the chance to kind of throw darts at the wall and see what stuck. So there was pieces for both. Um, uh, what I found interesting was that you need both because you need the starters of the idea, but you also need the maintainers yeah. and the starters and I throw myself in that box as well, <laughs> like, I, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like really inspired at the beginning, but the actual maintenance of the thing, 
not not my jam. Yeah, you know? kind of kills you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and there are people who would be really good about starting the project, getting things off the ground, asking the right questions, getting people pointed in the right direction. Uh, but those were the people they couldn't stay in one place for very long. So you could start right. to see a pattern of like, oh, we need to spin something up. I know who to ask. They can get the momentum, they can get it rolling. And then when we have it kind of figured out, we'll start to fill more roles in with those people who like to be in a little bit more of a stable environment. So it was more yeah. around finding the balance, but you had to observe it in action to see who kind of fit into those boxes. Yeah, the interesting piece too is, uh usually the entrepreneurial guys have to leave the organization to find another project because mm -hmm. you know once you've started something and built it you're less and less valuable because yeah. if you stay in one place and you don't have other projects you start you start fires because you need to you need to <laughs> ruin something to build something you know and so um, you scratch you that itch yeah did you guys did you guys figure that that rhythm out for like entrepreneurial leaders that go okay now you're over you could be over here now yeah well i don't know if they ever figured it out um i don't think it was nailed down by the time that i left but um, the thing that was interesting to me was that before that even, so Zappos was really good about recognizing that in their people and encouraging it. Uh, they had a program called Z Frogs, which I actually was able to do. That's how I got on the social media team. And the idea was, it was almost like Shark Tank before Shark Tank. And okay. so um, they would have all the C-suite would come together and they would get in a room once a quarter and you could come up with an idea and pitch it and it could become something that the company decided to do, or maybe you got chosen to do, you got funding, like, okay, test this out, and this will become your job for the next however long. Um, so they already kind of had a form of that. Um, what was interesting is it became harder when everyone could do it because there was less governing of budget to, to control it. And so right. in ZFrogs, it was very focused. It was, we have this amount of money, everyone's pitching for access to some of that. Whereas now, if everyone in the organization is kind of building it as we go and being able to throw these ideas out and test them, it became really hard to discern what are core practices and what are these kind of experimental things and how much budget do we allocate to these experimental things? So I think you saw a kind of explosion of it that we didn't expect, but also weren't prepared for from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that brings you back to vision and culture, I'm guessing. And when Simon Sinek talks about your why, right? Um, mm -hmm. You have to be very clear about that to be able to move in a specific direction, to be able to discern what to do and what not to do. Uh, yeah. I, I want to move um, a little bit forward in the future. You are now a uh, uh, an entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneur again, right? And mm -hmm. so you're starting. Uh, a new company called Octopi. Will you tell us what you're doing there? Yeah. Hey, before we get back to the rest of the interview, I wanna take a short break to tell you a little bit about something that I am doing with a team of mine, and that is called King City. King City is a new all digital church that is about helping you develop fulfillment in your life because actually we believe that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that no matter the amount of success you have, it's all futile in the end anyways. And we believe in defeating futility. But here's the deal, because it's digital, we're not gonna have a building, we're not going to be looking for people to pay for the mortgage or the lights right away, but we do need people that say, you know what, I am all in 
for some sort of new church that is all about reaching people for Jesus and helping people develop fulfillment and reach their potential so that they can change the world. What does that mean? That means you need to text me and we need to get on a Zoom call together. So let's do that, all right? The number is 480-531-9015. I will love to meet you. Now, enough of me talking. Let's get back to the interview. Um, so it's very similar. It's basically taking all the things that I've learned and been inspired by and trying to apply it to a broader context. So um, I, you mentioned Simon's work and that was really inspirational for me. And, and it gave me a ton of clarity on what really is important when you start working. And um, I didn't recognize that. I spent a lot of my time in my 20s and, and even in early 30s, I would say, um, working on things that seemed fun, seemed like it would get me ahead, but at the end of the day, didn't seem that fulfilling. And um, one of the things that I really took away from Zappos is that you attract great people. Like some of the people that I met, my coworkers are actually some of the best friends I still have to this day. And you don't have that at a lot of jobs. Maybe you have one or two, but for me, most of my friend group are people that I met on the job and worked with. And it wasn't right. just because I'm the guy who loves hanging around the walls of work, but it was because they made an environment that attracted people who felt the same way I did, looked at the world the same way I did, and wanted the same things. And so I think that's where purpose comes into play. And, and for me, after experiencing that and then leaving and then working with organizations that were maybe struggling, because that's a lot of what I do when I work with Simon's team, you know, I'll do keynote speeches at conferences, but mostly I run workshops for teams and organizations who are trying to either get some clarity, work on their culture, find better ways of working. And what I continue to see is organizations looking at people as assets rather than you know, recognizing they are the heartbeat of the organization. Because any organization, you take away the buildings and the tools, and it's just a bunch of people. And we seem to forget that a lot of times. And so my thought, especially that when it led to Octopi, was could we make it so that companies made better people? Because we spend so much time and energy. I mean, you and I have talked about this. You spend so much time and energy at work that it doesn't just stay there. We've all had those times when you've had a rough day at work. It's not like, okay, I'm home. I'm perfectly fine. I'm in a great mood now. Right. You know, it's, uh, you can't, you bring it home. You have, you, you take it out on family and friends and it carries over and there's an emotional toll that this takes in our lives. And so what if it gave us energy rather than taking it away? And it doesn't mean that every day is going to be fun, that you're going to love every minute of work, but that you're going to feel satisfied and fulfilled by that thing that you do. And work can be integrated through your life. Um, one right. of the things that always kind of bugged me was this idea of work-life balance. I like the spirit of it, but it also, it implies that they are diametrically opposed, right? Yeah. I you mean, can't, trying to be balanced yeah. kicks my ass, man. I just, <laughs> it is not, not good. I've like, uh, I, babe, you're not, I tell my wife all the time, you're probably not going to get quantity time. I will give you quality time. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. yeah, you don't usually hear the quantity piece in there, so that's, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I like that. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly what I mean, right? Is is we we think that life has to be lived outside of work, and if you love what you do and you're doing something that is meaningful to you, why shouldn't you get some satisfaction and enjoyment from the work that you do? And and so that became the kind of impetus of starting Octopi was this idea of can we help organizations shift the way they even approach work? Because 
most organizations come from that mindset we talked about earlier. It's almost adversarial between the organization and the employee, right? You sign all kinds of documents and NDAs and things that are going to say are non-compete so that you can't use anything against us. Well, that's with the assumption, like, what are you doing to ruin these people's lives to the point right. where you're so scared they're going to try and turn around and hurt you? And so there was these kind of, it occurred to me, and, and part of it's because of my bias from my experience, but it, it occurred to me that when I was working with these organizations, doing keynotes, doing workshops, like it could be really inspiring. And sure, some people probably took that forward, but I've been to enough conferences in my life and I've been to enough workshops in my life to recognize that usually two weeks after someone comes in and does a session for you, you don't remember what they were talking about. Like maybe the idea behind it, but none of like the specifics, right? Or maybe they told a really great story. That's all that you remember. Yeah. And for me, I, I, I wanted this combination of getting people excited. I didn't like the idea of just straight up consulting because that it creates dependency, right? I need to embed and you need to pay me so I can fix your problems. Like, no, I want you to fix your problems and I'm gonna teach you how to do it. Um, so that to me didn't work, but I took the experience that I had in, in product management and kind of thought to myself, well, if we really wanna change behavior, I saw people doing that on websites every single day. UX yeah. does this every single day, right? Um, the way that Amazon is designed, the way that their app is designed is a very specific way because they know how to engineer behavior and software is a great way of mm -hmm. doing that, whether we know it or not. Yes. And so the idea was if we wanna sustain and scale change and make it last and actually change behavior, we have to change the tools and systems that we're using too. And so that became kind of the second piece of Octopi that we're trying to build now, which is, so we get you excited about the change, but also we're gonna give you the software tools that allow you to, even if you're not trying, like you'll get the functionality you wanted that give, you know, get the candy, but also take your medicine along with it, even if you don't know. Yeah. And absolutely. so it gets you to be more human focused. Yeah, that's really um, good. Thanks. Yeah. And, and, and then the, there's one future piece that I'm really excited and hopeful for, which is, is when we get back to having physical space together, um, creating those kind of physical spaces that are centered more around community. Uh, I, you know, during I did a year abroad and during that year, I spent a lot of time in co-working spaces. I love the energy of co-working spaces. Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. And there's there's so much opportunity there, right? Because you meet yeah. so many interesting people. There's a ton of ideas. Everyone who you seem to run into at a co-working space is so excited about the work that they're doing mm -hmm. and it gets you excited. Yeah. And and coming from a small town, I mean, you and I lived in the same town. You know how small it is here and it's not tiny by any means, about 100,000, right. give or take. Right. So it's not a tiny, tiny town, but at the same time, it doesn't have the amenities that a big city like an LA or a New York or even Denver you yeah. know, has. And so the access and ability to go to a, a WeWork or a co-working space just isn't there for a lot of people in a similar situation. Right. And so the idea was, what if we created these spaces that are physical communities, but also made it so that they were designed for traditional organizations to take risks? So rather than being directly for the entrepreneurs, the, the startups, the solopreneurs, sure, they can work there too, but we actually help partner with big organizations in those cities, like the biggest employers in town, and we are a benefit onto their package as a flex work option. There and we go. So, yeah. You know, however many days a week. And you, I mean, we've all experienced probably over the, the past year, work from home, a lot of companies were super resistant to it because of that lack of trust, right? right? Yeah. And, and so 
what if you know they could feel confident that you're going to be at a space they can see who's going and who's using the space when they're there how long they're there they know there's strong internet connection they know there's going to be quiet spaces with call booths like all the stuff you need coffee shop on site um, how much more confident would organizations be to taking that small step instead of the big leap in trusting their employees and once they open that door how could we then use that as an opportunity to help them even trust you more Right. We, we start to give you classes. You can teach maybe some of your own classes. We start to create community amongst the people who are there across different organizations. And suddenly, you know, you're delivering amazing work. You're getting new ideas. Oh, and by the way, you're also feeling more whole and human as you're going through your life. So so those are kind of the three buckets that we're trying to do with Octopi. But we're starting right now working solely on kind of how do we get a more human focus when it comes to uh, the mindset and and maybe the structures that we're working in right now. So that's the the big focus. Yeah, that's really amazing. So you've really taken this uh, vision for helping uh, organizations build culture, but uh, culture is a pretty big buzzword these days. So um, (laughs) would you drill down for us what culture really is at its essence? Oh, yeah, that's that's a hornet's nest. Um, For me, when I think about a company culture, it really is at its core, how you show up for each other behind the scenes. Um, It has nothing to do with the perks or the benefits. You know, a lot of people think culture has a lot to do with the nap pods or the foosball table in the break room or whatever it is. And we've all discovered, you know, as we don't have access to those things, how little those really change the people behind the scenes. And so um, for me, it's, it's about having clarity of your values and not only knowing what those mean, but knowing what they mean in practice and embodying those uh, across the board. And so a a strong company culture is an intentional one to me. Uh, I've worked with a lot of startups who they like the idea of having a strong company culture, but they don't put any effort into it. They're like, fun is our company culture. Right. (laughs) Fun is an output. It is not an input, right? Um, And so, you know, for me, it's about clarifying not just like what do we stand for and i think uh, that values are a bit misinterpreted well not necessarily even misinterpreted i think they need a reevaluation when it comes to organizations because in the past values have been here are the core ethics of the organization we'll talk about integrity trust honesty customer centric whatever those kind of general principles are um, which can be great but also if you leave them as principles, what ends up happening is they're open to interpretation as to what that actually looks like in practice. And for me, what a value should do is be reflective of who the people are behind the scenes at their very best and encourage them to be that way every single day. And so if you have these principles, turning them into actions to say, cool, integrity here looks like following through on your word. Some other places it might be, you know, never tell a lie, whatever, right? There's different interpretations. But here, when we say integrity, it means that if you say you're going to do something, you actually follow through with it. That we can hold each other accountable for. That I know what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like. And I can start to measure if that actually is important to my employees or not. And so it's observable behavior behind the scenes. And so for me, it's culture is understanding not only what are the values that we have, but what do these principles look like when it plays out? And do we hold each other accountable to show up that way? Um, One of the best um, kind of comparisons I've heard or one of the best kind of phrases from my friend Peter Docker was um, this difference between doing and being. 
and doing is a lot of what's in the business. We work in the business a lot. Um, you know, all of our performance metrics are typically around doing. Um, but being is the culture piece and who are, how are you showing up along the way? And that I think you need to have clarity of to have a consistent culture across the board. You have to actually be explicit as to what that is and not just kind of clumsily end up with, oh, people show up in this way and we, we just ended up attracting these type of people because some of those type of people were already here, right? If right. you want to be intentional about building a culture, you have to know what you stand for and, and who you want to be at your best and then, you know, stick to those things when even when it's inconvenient. Right. So um, you have a bunch of leaders that uh, are, you know, leading an organization through startups, but you also have those leaders, th probably the overwhelming majority of those leaders are actually in middle management in a company or they are in a... Uh, an organization that um, they're not the lead chair on. Uh, how do they build culture when they're not the leader? Yeah, it's it's always easier. Um, it's the difference between evolution and revolution, right? Evolution is top down, um, much easier way to change. Uh, revolution, typically a little bit more violent, if you're thinking about it in the social sense, but also when it comes to organizations, right, it can, it can cause some friction. Um, revolution can happen also in a very slow, peaceful kind of way. And the idea is first starting with questions, I would say, um, because you have to come from a place of curiosity. I think, and I'm speaking from personal experience, and I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know when I came into the organization, I had preconceived notions about what was right, what was wrong, what we should do versus what we shouldn't do. And so I would lead oftentimes with opinions. Um, what I found was better about creating change or, or more effective at creating change was if I led with a question and came from a place of curiosity. Rather than saying, we shouldn't do this, I would ask, what were the things that led us to down this path so that we're doing this thing? Because I might be missing out on some stuff, right? And so when people heard me coming from a place of curiosity, suddenly the walls came down and they were open to having a conversation about it. And it was more likely that I could have an impact even if I didn't have the authority over the other person in the room. And so for me, it was coming from a place of curiosity it starts to create that change. Um, being intentional with the questions that you're asking so don't just you know ask about everything, but know why you're asking it. You don't have to ask leading questions of like, shouldn't we do something like you know that has an implied correct answer. Not talking about those kind of leading questions, but I'm talking about genuine curiosity with the intention in mind of trying to get clear on X. And uh, when you start to open up those conversations, you create the space where someone who may have had their mind made up some way in a position of authority can go you know what, I haven't thought about this in a while, or no one's really asked me that. I don't even know what the answer is. And so it plants the seeds for the opportunity to change. So for me, that's number one is coming from a place of curiosity. And number two is, and it's, it's counter, not counterintuitive, it's tough. Um, but number two is the ability to stand up for what you feel is right for the right reasons. So a lot of times, and this goes back to that example I used of myself earlier, I would stand up against a bad idea because it was my opinion it was a bad idea. Um, but a much more effective approach of times when I should stand up is when I see someone being taken advantage of, when I see us acting out of our character as an organization, um, when I see someone who professes that we have these values not doing that, or if we're as an organization making decisions that say our purpose, like here's our why, here are our values, and I say, well, we're talking about opening this new line of business, 
And sure, we could make a lot of money doing that, but is that representative of what we're trying to build up here, that, that purpose? And if you're, if you're asking those kinds of questions and making sure that when you raise those challenges, you can point to the framework and say, this isn't just me, like I just wanna make sure we're being who we say we are, and this is why. Uh, I think those two tools of coming from curiosity and standing up for what's right, knowing that it's, you know, you can lean to the framework of why and values, those things will really help you lead in place. Um, and, and I guess the last thing is um, just making sure people know you have their back. That's, that draws people to you. In fact, I, I did a keynote this morning with a group and um, we talk about leadership a lot growing up. Like you, we, when we went to high school together, we had Key Club, we had DECA, we had FBLA, yeah. and all of these clubs and organizations all come back to creating leaders of tomorrow. And I worked with Key Club. I actually went and did a volunteer gig for them. Um, I think it was the Northwest Division uh, last year, or maybe even before that. And the thing that I started off that talk with was like, we talk about leading people without knowing where we're trying to take them. And that's such a selfish pursuit, right? To say you should yeah. want to be a leader is about you. It's just about to say, I want to lead people without knowing where you want to lead them is the same thing as saying, I want followers. Well, if you want that, just go start a TikTok or an Instagram account and, and do your thing there. That's not leadership, right? Leadership implies you have a destination and people want to follow you there. And so for me, knowing that, uh, knowing where you want to go, having that clear destination, being intentional with the questions and things like that, uh, is, is very much aligned and then showing up in a way that invites people to want to be around you. And it's not about like trying to appeal so that everybody likes you, but if I am more attracted in my life to people who will be honest with me in a loving way, give me the feedback, right? Even if I don't want right. to hear it, being able to pull me aside and, and say, Hey, in that meeting, the way you showed up, I, I think you might have offended so-and-so or, you know, and, and giving me those kinds of pieces of feedback genuine honesty and coming from a place of care, not because I'm trying to make you wrong about it, but because I want to see you succeed and I'm afraid you're getting in your own way. Very different approaches to maybe the same conversation. And so if you show up in a way that lets people know, I have your back, even if it's inconvenient, I've got your back, then I think you start to attract people and start to be able to change minds. When you're not in a position of authority, people will still want to bend over backwards to help you out and make the change you want to see. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I, as we are getting ready to, uh, like transition into a close, uh, one of the things that I care about our listeners, um, doing with their lives is creating impact in their cities, but also creating and developing individual fulfillment. So if you looked at Maslow's mm -hmm. hierarchy of needs, it'd be that self-realization piece, right? Um, how can we, um, as leaders and organizations, help create that and help other people develop that in their own lives? Hmm. Um, the word legacy comes up for me a lot when I think about this um, and, and asking yourself, you know, one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself is, uh, what would I want to be on my tombstone? It's a bit morbid, but like, what would you want to be remembered as? Um, I remember part of the thing that got me on the path to where I am today, I, I took a, an intro to philosophy class my freshman year of college, 
and I fell in love. And one of the things that struck me as I was sitting there was we were reading, I think, Plato, and, and I just went, it's crazy how we re remember Plato, but we have no idea who the second or third richest person in Greece was at that time, right? Yet we live our lives as if that's the end game now. Um, and it's all about the impact. How can you actually change people's minds? And for me, it was about how do we change the way people relate to each other? That's the big way I think is, is left to, to um, make our impact and leave our dent in the universe. And so um, asking yourself and on terms of on a human level, what's the impact that you want to make? So beyond the selfish stuff of, okay, you know, by 30, I want to be making this much money. I want to have this kind of house. I want to, you know, and, and those are things that are fine to have as goals. But if you're going to make those goals, make impact goals as well. By 30, I also want to have taught X many people. I want to have dug this many wells for people, like whatever it looks like for you. Um, make the, we're not good at making those kinds of goals. So I would say make impact goals um, and really try and understand what's going to bring that sense of fulfillment out of you. Um, I, I, the work that I've done with Simon and, and his team has given me a lot of insight into how you can articulate that. And so a book that I would recommend if you're interested, both at a personal level or as an organization, uh, on identifying and clarifying your purpose statement or your why, there is a book called Find Your Why, where they outline the process. I'll, I'll give you a kind of a high level of how it works. Uh, but I love, even if you don't go through this process, what I love is the framework of the output. And so as an individual or as an organization, you can have a why statement. Um, you can call it a statement of purpose, whatever it is, right? And that why statement has two pieces to it, contribution and impact. And you think about it as cause and effect. When I'm at my natural best, what's the thing that I do and the difference that it ultimately makes? And if you can articulate those two things connected to each other and use not wishful thinking, but actual historical data of your life to inform that. So in the workshops from, uh, from Find Your Why, it's about telling stories, right? Meaningful, impactful moments in your life. You don't have to know why they were impactful. But if you can tell those stories and have someone listen to them and ask questions and take notes, you start to see patterns emerge and you go, oh, crap, I really care about this outcome. Oh, crap, I really love to do this thing for people or I love when people do this thing for me. And so thinking about it in terms of contribution and impact, I think, can be really powerful. And it's the same thing with organizations. We uh, think about things oftentimes as mission statements, <laughs> mission and vision statements are a, such a mixed bag. Right, because with vision, it's it's sometimes it's a very clear picture, but sometimes it's a super uninspiring vision. Right, right. right. Dunder to Mifflin. Be the is... number one... <laughs> yeah. To, to yeah. be the number one retailer in the Pacific Northwest for X, you know, yeah. like, no, no one gets excited about that. And so if you keep these things, strip the product, strip the service out of it, think about that impact, but think about it at when at our natural best, like this organization, if we do this right, What's the thing we do really well? And not, like I said, if it's selling clothing, uh, maybe it's helping people realize their, you know, the, the hidden gem underneath. I don't know, but, but like thinking about it, that next level up, take, take the what's out of there um, and look at contribution and impact as those two pieces that can really start to give you clarity because it's almost like uh, the impact gives you the finish line you're running towards. 
but also the contribution gives you the clarity of the racing lanes on how to get there, right? Yeah. Anyone can help create this impact. We don't exclusively own it, but I'll tell you to get there, we use this specific contribution and we're really good at that thing. Right. And that will help you create some of those meaningful kind of measurements as well in your life of how will I know if I'm getting there? Well, if you have it in terms of contribution and impact, you can start to say, I'll know I'm getting there because I can see that I am making this impact in this way. Right. So I would encourage you to think about it in those terms. I appreciate that because that's one of the things I've found with working with Gen Z is it's become harder and harder to, um, I guess, you know, growing up for us, it was like, hey, find out what you want to do with the rest of your life. This one gives a little bit better handles on you may not know what you're going to do when you're 60, but you can know <laughs> why you're doing what you're doing now. And that can help become a compass. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, one of the yeah, things cool. that you had been, you said earlier uh, was about uh, everything at the end of the day is not about the organization or the hierarchy or the structure. It's about people. And uh, that really resonated. I, I, I tell my team all the time, legacy is measured in impact and people measure legacy. And so it's always mm -hmm. about the people you're leaving behind. And so um, I, it, you hit the nail right on the head. So, hey, Matt, where do we find you online? What, what, where would you like <laughs> us to go? Um, I mean, always LinkedIn's always good. I'm there. I'm on Instagram. Um, and uh, the Octopi website's got all of my info as well. Um, really complicated email, matt at octopi.io. Um, you can always reach me there. But, but yeah, LinkedIn is great because um, I'm, I'm pretty good about checking that and staying up to date on that. I'm a slow with messages, awesome. but I do get to all of them. So yeah, if you connect with me on there, I'll, I'll message you back. Yeah, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. We'll put all the books that we talked about. Uh, matt, thank you very much for being a part of this. Oh, thanks for having me. I so, love geeking out about this stuff. Yeah, That's man. why I wore my glasses today. <laughs> right, right. I was going to do the same thing, but I had too much glare. So it is what it is. So That's fair. Well, I appreciate it, brother. And, and thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah, man. Wow. Thanks, Matt. That was an amazing interview, wasn't it, guys? Hey, every week we'll bring you one of two segments, the soapbox or hot reads. Now, the soapbox is a moment where I dive into a major point our guests made and I unpack it. And hot reads is where I review a book and give you my thoughts on it. I recommend the reading and I tell you why. And here's the deal. I promise to make it better than a school book report. This week, I want to start us off with our first soapbox. I just loved what Matt had to say about culture creating. What stood out to me was that the organization should stop seeing their people as assets and begin to see them as the heartbeat of the organization. Now, when I was first leading, I was guilty of this very sentiment. I would drive my team, ignore the celebratory moments, and then harp on the places where they needed to improve. It wasn't until my coach came and saw it firsthand and then pulled me aside and said, dude, I would never work for you. Your team is human and you have seemed to forget, forgot that. Now, here's the deal. The truth is I didn't even think about it. I cared so much about excellence and performance, not compassion and empathy. It all comes down to this, okay? People are the pulse of your purpose. And when we lose sight of their humanity and worth in pursuit of our success or our own winning and our own wealth or you name it, we lose our right to lead in the long run. 
Jesus, who I consider the greatest leader that ever walked this planet, also understood this. To him, it was all about the people. And he got mad at the religious and political leaders of his day because they would see people as a means to an end and not the end itself. So here's the deal. Jesus Jesus let us know that this type of leadership produces futility. And it produces futility in us and in others. Because the byproduct of this is strife, hate, dysfunction, and bitterness. He taught his leaders not to use their authority to overpower their people. And he went one step further. When we lead our people in this way, we are like the leaders whom he called out. And he called them sons of hell. What's worse is that you yourself will begin to feel empty and depleted when you lead this way. So I want to give you three tips on how to begin leading people as if they are really the pulse of your purpose. Number one is celebrate the highs. When you have a moment of excellence, a moment of high production, when you guys have scaled a summit and you guys have won, take time to celebrate the wins. This was not easy for me and not something that came natural. I felt like I didn't need to celebrate, yet I actually did. And so when I gave our team the moment to celebrate, I actually was able to take some moment to reflect as a leader myself what went right, not so much what went wrong. And I took some time to enjoy the moment because you don't always get moments like that. Number two, lead with questions, not commands. Another one that I sucked at. (laughs) Um, Oftentimes when I am in the hard charging uh, mindset, I forget that I try my best to bring the best people around in the circle and in the organization. And so I end up thinking I have to have all the answers. And so I just start telling people what to do. That's what an Enneagram 8 does. Right. And so um, what I've learned is if I want the best people in my organization, I need to lead with questions and not commands because those people are smart and usually smarter than me in the area that I've recruited them to. And if I will begin to ask questions and learn from them and seek to understand not to win the argument, I begin to realize that there are better ways to do it than what I had thought previously. Number three, show your vulnerability. Another one that us Enneagram eights really are horrible at. But I've learned over the over the years that if I can show where I'm weak, where I can show where I'm vulnerable, where I can admit my mistakes, where I can open up to my team, even if I'm afraid they'll stab me in the back and they don't because they're good people. But even if I have that fear, if I will open up to them, they will they'll act more like a team than ever before and they will perform at a higher level because they really are the pulse of your purpose. They really are, and they want to be. Each and every one of us wants a culture of high-performing leaders, and they want a culture that people love to work for, and it starts at the top with leaders. And sorry, leaders, most of us don't show enough vulnerability. So do those three things, and you will begin to create a culture that shows that people are the pulse of your purpose. Hey, remember to subscribe to us. And if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to rate and review us. 
remember that it is up to you to develop fulfillment because there's a world out there that needs you and fulfilled leaders fill the world with hope. Hey, I love that conversation with Matt. He had a lot of great wisdom for those of us that are in the business field, but if you lead and you lead a team of any kind, you can grab some wisdom from what he said about culture building. Hey, he is building a business, so we wanna help him out. So if you're in the uh, market for some sort of consulting or coaching or figuring out how to build culture within your organization, check him out at octopi.io. Again, that's octopi.io. Thank you for listening to the Leadful Podcast, hosted by Chesley Lunday. Join us next time to discover insights, to defeat futility, and develop fulfillment. Now it's your turn to lead full. Go, fill the world with hope.